Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. In Sicyon, in ancient Greece, a young woman named Cora was in love. Before her sweetheart set off on a long voyage, she asked him to sit for her. Casting a silhouette with lamplight, Cora lovingly traced his profile on a wall. According to historian Pliny, her father, a skilled artisan, was inspired to fill the outline with clay, simultaneously creating a faithful portrait and inventing low-relief sculpture. Ovid's tale about an artist is better known. Pygmalion carved a statue of a woman so beautiful that he fell madly in love with his creation. At Aphrodite's temple he offered sacrifices and prayed to meet to possess just such a peerless woman. The goddess divined the truth of Pygmalion's desire and on his return to the studio, the statue came to life in his arms. In 1987 or 88, in my early teens, I decided I wanted to be an artist. Around that time, my mom and auntie brought me and a cousin to Paris for a few days. I recall leaning out of a hotel window and seeing the keys of the Seine decked with flags for Bastille Day. For a long time I had a small painted sketch I made of this from-the-window scene, executed, I suspect, not particularly to capture or remember the festive import, but because I imagined it was what an artist would do. My mother loves art, so I think we visited multiple galleries and art museums. I remember seeing Rodin's Age of Bronze. When first exhibited in 1877, The sculpture was deemed so lifelike that Rodin was accused of casting it directly from his model. I had a large postcard of the work blue-tacked to my bedroom wall for years. With hindsight's craft, it feels like my first experience of feeling something powerful but inexplicable for a sculpture. The impress wasn't merely visual, but physical and emotional too. I still collect postcards and find new sculptures to love but I haven't sketched a hotel view since. Six years ago, I learned that 2 to 3% of the population have no mind's eye. They can't summon mental imagery or sounds. And about 12% of people have mind's eyes so powerful that they can inwardly conjure scenes and or sounds as vividly as if they were seeing or hearing the real thing. Most of us can voluntarily see imagery that is duller, less resolved or detailed than reality but sufficient to recall places we've visited, faces, art or music we've encountered. I fall into the 2 to 3%, close my eyes and there is blackness. It was a small shock to discover that mind's eye is not a metaphor, but further evidence that humans think in different ways was no surprise. So, I can't summon an image of any sculpture or the view of the Liffey from my Temple Bar studio never mind a bedecked sen seen 30 plus years ago. But I haven't forgotten being a kid and believing that Paris was still the centre of the art world. Condition is too fancy a word to describe being aphantasic, as mind blindness is known. But it's made me wonder about how I work. I know that only by producing a thing, be it a painting, a rug or a whole exhibition, will I find out how it should look, what it can be. Maybe with a powerful mind's eye, there would be less figuring out as I go. Less mess made, 
fewer abandoned works, but perhaps less happy accidental happenstance too. Pygmalion may have been a 12 percenter, or hyperfantasic, as neuroscientists name it. He envisaged precisely how a perfect woman should look. It's often left out in the telling of his story that real women disgusted Pygmalion, and he vowed never to marry. A woman without a past, family, friends, memory, identity or agency was his idea of ideal. I don't care for Pygmalion. Cora I appreciate. Maybe she's a sister aphantasic, recording her lover's features. A portrait can be surprisingly good company. Perhaps she feared she might never see his face again. But whether it emerges from darkness or blinks out of light, Art is fit for more than hanging on to the past and for more than being a means to avoid a world we can't bear. Art is a somehow, sometimes way to manage, to love even, the difficulty of being here. If we close our eyes to shut out reality in despair, art prompts us to open them and look again. The priest of my sleepless nights, feverish nights, comes back to me in my wartime dreams. 1941, La Varenne Saint-Hilaire, near Paris. Here comes Robert Alesch, the Deval's child. What? Worse, a Nazi curate with the cross cleverly hidden under his soutane, next to the cross of Christ. Unbelievable, but true. He looms over my old crocs insomnia, the snitch, the grass, the scoundrel. He comes back behind my closed eyelids, high forehead, eyes shuttled by thick bushes. Burning bushes? My eye, no miracle there. Hypocritical sermons, faking courage, Judas words. For what? Money, of course. What else? Quizzling stuff, bloody quizzling, under the soutane, the stall, and all that goes with it. Even became a resistant fighter. He didn't. He did. Codename Bishop, a double agent, a fake member of the resistance, in the service of Germany, and his mistresses. Pockets full, flies undone, Judas kiss. What do you mean? Lives sold for profit. The traitor's wage, 12,000 pieces of silver a month, guessed upon money. And that's not all. There's more? Go on. Yes, he got bonuses. A bonus per head, 5,000 francs or so. Resistance networks sold at market. Sold like cattle by that pig. A pig or an eagle? 
No matter. He was an informer, a murderer of the worst kind, the kind that devours its little ones. Say it again. Shake your head. Start again calmly. Here comes Robert Alesch, a priest from Luxembourg, a German-speaking priest. Bilingual, was he? Yes. He used his language to betray his friends. His friends? Mine. Use his soutane to betray my friends. I see. 1941. An appointment with the Gestapo. What do you want, sir? To work for the Abwehr. The what? The German Secret Service. Now I see. Code number 162. That was his informer's number. The grass in disguise. Disguise as what? As a priest, of course. As a so-called priest comrade. In the service of the resistance. Rubbish. Unforgivable lies. He preached virulent sermons against the enemy. In fact, his friends, slipping him backhanders. Misplaced confidence. Drowned. Comrades. Your comrades? Yes. Germaine and Alfred. And the others were betrayed to the Nazi swine. For 12,000 francs a month, not counting the swag. The swag? Yes. 5,000 pieces of silver head given to Alesh for his fancy women, his tarts. How many? Two that I know of. But what do we know about priest sins? Not all of them, Sam. Let's see. Him. Robert. King of the rats, rented a bachelor pad to wallow in at night with his mistresses. Both of them? No matter. We are not interested in the details. The only important piece of information is that he was a priest by day, a lover by night, and a full-time scavenger, right at the top of the dung hip that the war created. He was not idle. No idle hours for the collaborator. A lot of money in his pockets, in the pockets of the Soutane that protected him. For how long? For a long time. For years. Take it if you put it in proportion to the war years. They're like cat years. One year counts for seven. What do you mean? Nothing. Alesh, the leech, licked everything he could. Sucked the blood of the dead, not just the altar wine, and reveled in it until he was thirsty. How much blood? Pause. Painful memory. No forgetting, no gaps. Memory intact all in the present. His coming back. No. Yes. One morning, Robert Alesh, a curate by profession, leading a double life of debauchery and betrayal, rang the doorbell of Maurice de Sage, the resistance leader. We checked with the nurse, Sister Ernestine, an irreproachable member of the resistance, a fighter in a wimple 
who was unaware of the secrets hidden under his soutane. And what happened next? The 1942 massacre. The arrest of the Vomico brothers, prominent members of the network, indispensable members. Go on. Brazen-faced Alesh said he would be able to buy their freedom, more pieces of silver in his heavy pockets. No release, no happy end. What? Instead, what followed was more knocks on doors and cascades of betrayals. August 13th, Germaine. 15th, Hélène. 16th, my dear Alfred. Stop! Yes, he sold them off, one by one, that devolved masquerading as a saint. All of them, Sam? Alas, not I. In Outliving, the poet Bernard O'Donoghue responds to the emotion he felt when he realized that he had lived longer than his father. That unmoored sensation led him to look back on spots of time, significant moments in his relationship with his father and, by extension, with Ireland. In autumn 2012, I suddenly became aware that I had crossed a similar temporal boundary as I had spent more time living in Paris than in Ireland, outliving my Irish self, so to speak. It was both satisfying and unsettling. Informed by another poet, Jerry Murphy, whose musings on his poetic vocation is entitled Why I Am a Poet, I wondered why I am a Parisienne. Is it because of the songs like Frère Jacques or Gentil Alouette, I learned aged four? Or the family Imrama to France, when we drove cross-country from Le Havre to the farthest tip of Brittany? Or perhaps might it be due to the tartelette aux fraises that we ate on Sunday mornings in Morlaix, when in later years we took the Cork-Roscoff ferry? In the haze of Sunday sunshine, because in my memory it never rained in France. We made straight for the pâtisserie, sinking our teeth with sacramental relish into the fraise de Plougastel. Or might it be born of my addiction to French stationery, a vice enabled by my parents, who gave me free reign in French pépéterie every summer. So while other classmates had homework notebooks, I had agent de scolaire and wrote on Clairefontaine squared paper with a Waterman fountain pen throughout secondary school. Or can it be attributed to my Picardy pen pal, Sandrine Dozier, whose mother Morissette introduced me to the wonders of French cheese? Roquefort and Maroilles replaced Calvita 
and easy singles? Or was it the 45 Tour records that Sandrine's grandmother bought me every summer? So I spent the winters humming along to Johnny Hallyday and Dalida. Or perhaps it is all down to Sandrine's uncle, René Dozier, who took us to Paris aged 13 and pointed out the Chambre de Bonne he lived in while studying at the Sorbonne. He was deputy maire of Lens and gave us an inside view on French democracy as he showed us round the Assemblée Nationale. Later, we went to what has become my favourite bookshop, Compagnie, on the Rue des Écoles. The trip left me murmuring like Rastignac, hero of Le Père Goriot, à nous deux maintenant, as the Parisian vista receded. Balzac was a later read, though. At 13, I was picking my way through Les Cornichons au Chocolat, sharing the angst of a French teenager who ate pickles smeared in chocolate sauce. Or maybe it can be traced to my educational experiences in St. Bridget's College, Cork, where we learnt Paul va très bien, mais Marie est malade from the écouter et parler method, developed to teach American soldiers French during World War II. Or did it come later still, when in Limerick we studied Albert Camus, l'étranger and L'Exil et le Royaume are texts I reread every year, but I have swapped my paperbacks for the elegant binding of the Pleiade edition. University College Cork's Lecture Exchange Programme was the start of my displacement. The French department sent me abroad for one year, a year that has stretched three decades. However, if I am entirely honest, I think I can trace it back to my first trip to France, age seven, when I travelled with my godmother on a pilgrimage to Lourdes. Well, Lourdes. An entirely secular pilgrimage, I must confess, which could be confirmed by the contents of our suitcases. We packed sun oil and bikinis for the Hotel Pool. Needless to say, hotel pools were unheard of in Lourdes. The only bathing was in the holy baths, and certainly not in bikinis. Undaunted, we wore them in the shower before breakfast, a fact I shared with our fellow pilgrims over dinner. The eyebrows raised at table were nothing to the quizzical looks that appeared when we skipped the trip to the Soubirou homestead in favour of a bus trip to Biarritz. In Galerie Lafayette, my aunt taught me the word Combien and its etymological relationship to combing your hair, an action she mimed while I purchased a navy and yellow satchel. I carried it like a transitional object on the flight back to Cork. It was in Lourdes also that I tasted my first café serré, like Prousse Madeleine, but more tart, tinged with the bitter sweet taste of elsewhere. And although, like Josephine Baker, I can sing J'ai deux amours, mon pays et Paris. As a Cork woman, I can also find truth in the phrase of another poet, Theo Dorgan, who says, You never leave Cork, you just live elsewhere. 
When I was nine years old, I spent a short holiday at my father's family home in the spa, a few miles outside Tralee. I wanted to ride the ponies with my cousins, all of them experts in the saddle. I have the letter my father sent from his site engineer's office, missing me, reminding me, it's what you have wanted all along. The old house had been divided between my aunt's family and my solitary grandmother, two households joined by a long conservatory overlooking a sunken lawn set out for tennis. The house was surrounded by tall trees with uncountable crows nesting in their branches. Nobody seemed to notice the constant cawing that sawed the air. I felt confused by my cousin's Kerry accents, a lonely stranger in my own land. I had wanted to find my home place, now I wanted to go home. My grandmother would emerge from her darkened lair to sit among the plants in the sunny porch. She had a parrot in a cage. I was interested in this exotic, unfriendly bird, pushing bits of apple into him, poking my fingers through the bars. I was warned he would bite. When he sunk his pointed beak into my finger, holding it tight with his claw, waiting for the taste of blood before letting go, I must have been surprised, even a little upset. I took myself over to Nana's chair, seeking comfort or consolation. I told you he would bite, she reminded me. No comfort offered. No consolation. I knew my grandmother had long ago endured the grief of my grandfather's drowning off the coast of Brittany, leaving her with seven children to rear, perhaps hardening her heart, who knows. He must have been something of an adventurer, hobby-sailing from Kerry to France. My father, who had sailed with him on some of those expeditions, was at that time beginning his final year as a boarder in Mungret College. He was summoned from study told of the shipwreck, that his father hadn't been found, and sent back to his desk. Three weeks later, the body was washed up on the rocky shores of Plurescon and quickly buried in the local churchyard. No one there to tend to the turbulence of my father's teenage psyche. Blaming himself, he suffered what he later recognised as some sort of nervous breakdown. Went, as he said, wild in his mind. Fifteen years ago, I went to visit the grave in this little village on the western tip of France. A board-marked concrete headstone with packing crate stenciled lettering, David Toomey, died at sea, 1938. I rang my father to say, here I am, standing at the well-kept graveside, with my son, his grandson, the age now that he was then. Four generations of Toomey men connected down the line. Had he set up the painted concrete headstone? Silence, then two sentences with a pause in between. I have nothing to do with that grave. My mother should have brought the body home. My father had rushed off to join the British Navy, ditching the first year of his university studies. He'd worked on building sites in Belfast, sharing a bed with a man who worked the night shift waiting for his 18th birthday to allow him to join up. He first trained in radar, then navigation, and finally, towards the end of the war, flying into narrow fjords to lay aerial mines, 
preventing Norwegian waters being used to harbour German U-boats. In August 1944, his ship, the aircraft carrier HMS Nabob, was torpedoed below the waterline by one of those enemy submarines. According to the Royal Navy Research Archive, 30 men died and a further 40 were injured in that attack. Six years after his father's drowning in the cruel sea, my father found himself floating before rescue in the Arctic waters of the Barents Sea. Not that he ever mentioned the war. Like so many of that generation, the whole empty adventure was not up for easy reminiscence. After touring those fjords with a Norwegian friend, hearing of his boyhood discoveries of washed-up mines, how his parents had told him those mines had kept them safe, I returned to my father with spirit-restoring reports of Norwegian gratitude for the Allied actions. It was then he handed over the photograph album that has allowed me to piece together his time in the war. Scanning a formal photo of the 852 squadron, I found him standing in the fourth row, arms folded, cap tilted, ready for action. In February 1944, he'd gone over on the Queen Mary, newly stripped out for the troops, to join his ship in San Francisco. I don't remember feeling like crying when my father died, his death being a welcome end to his slow removal from conscious life by confusion of mind. One afternoon in London, six years after the funeral, I came upon an aerial film in the Ocean Liners exhibition at the Victoria and Albert Museum, a newsreel showing thousands of sailors out on deck of the Queen Mary. I knew he must be there somewhere, one among those tiny specks of humanity, heaving from side to side like mechanically animated figures. And there, anonymous among the many in attendance, I wept without warning for my long-lost old man. We have a tiny urban garden bound by the high wall of the railway which runs over our heads and rattles our cups. Visitors often start at the rumble, yet we barely notice it. Even when my son was a tiny baby, he never woke at this sound, and I wondered if he'd gotten used to it in the womb. We do get used to things. There's that term, beginner's mind, which refers to an openness, a seeing anew. And we know that a child's eye on the world can be very useful, a prompt like a constant jolt or rattle to notice. But could we cope if we noticed everything? It seems recently that the whole situation means too much. And things always, necessarily perhaps, appear to move from the exceptional to the everyday. 
There's a function on the iPhone camera called Live. I discovered it by accident. Instead of your usual still picture, it takes a kind of extended moving image from which you could technically pluck a perfectly framed moment. If you hold your finger on the screen, an odd and messy section plays out. I find it strangely sad. It could be said to give you back what you didn't know you wanted, but instead it produces an encounter with absence. Because I can't help but lift and press my finger to repeat the loop, it's like a recurrent hit of noticing the part of a moment you lost, again and again. Yes, in the last couple of years of loops and lost moments, we've been grateful to be on home ground, a place constructed, however briefly, of our familiar objects and habits. During the most intensely isolated times, we went further to ground. We bedded in, tended to the corners, stuff and surfaces. It was remarkably quiet, a time of a weighty hush where it seemed little could be said or done. In that particular protracted interlude, there were less trains. Interestingly, we did notice their absence, and the sun shone more than usual. The garden's minuscule beings were noticeably busy hefting earth and food. We spent days outside watching the patch work its own ground, and sometimes we lay on it. It was a small community of reciprocal gazes. Could such silence be a place of power? Or at what point might it shift from beginner's mind to lethargy? We definitely needed to do something, anything, so we began digging a hole, a pond in our little garden. I wondered if this strange hush could be met head on with a spade. We tend to notice labour only when we work ourselves. And it turns out there is a significant amount of labour involved in digging a hole. It's a very productive as well as a destructive act, one that's as much about accumulation as removal. We displaced a disproportionately large mound of soil containing a wealth of treasure. We unearthed shards of pottery, glass and twisted metal and laid them out to dry, a pile of messy material that had been touched by many hands. There was a delight and a comfort in this. Once something connects with the scale of the human body and its effort, maybe there's a kind of joining, a small sense of proportion and relief. The ground became more impermeable as we dug. The pit became more solid. We plugged its gaps, sealed and moulded its edges, and took care. Eventually, we filled the hollow with water. And over the next few weeks and months, the birds, insects and frogs all came. We had constructed a lure, a beacon for washing and drinking. A space to quench had been revealed, a simple garden pond. I fixated on an adolescent hooded crow that visited daily for a while. He needed to raise his head so the stagnant water could trickle down his throat. His body bowed towards the water and then rose rhythmically towards the sky in order to sate his thirst. I worried that the enclosed space was too tight for him to take flight as he clumsily hopped from pot to hedge to air.
Jenny Offal writes in her book Weather about what she calls the ubiquitous note of hope that must conclude every article describing our impending planetary doom. I too often feel compelled to articulate hope in the work I produce. So I'm simply writing to mention that maybe even the quiet, garden-variety type of pond revolution is still worth doing, even if it just gives us back our beginner's mind for a little while. On this morning's programme, we heard Cora of Sision by Isabel Nolan, and that was followed by Samuel Beckett at War by Maylis Bessery. Why I Am a Parisienne was by Cleona Niriadon. Far From Home was by John Toomey. And Making a Space, a Quiet Revolution was by Niamh O'Malley. And the music this morning, Pecadille en Portune by Eric Satie and Jean-Joël Barbier, which was performed by Theodorus Anzalotti on accordion. And then Sonata for Pianoforte and Violin Cello in C major, Opus 102 by Beethoven. And that was played by Anner Bilsmann on cello and Joss von Immersil on piano. J'ai du amour was sung by Josephine Baker and On Lone Dove is on Kershuk was performed by Seamus O'Begley on vocals and accordion with Jim Murray on guitar. The Sunday Miscellany Broadcasting Coordinator is Elaine Conlon and this edition of the programme was produced by Cleana Nianluan. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany Podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.